0: Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by very special guest, Dan Mall. Dan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Dan, for folks who haven't come across you yet, uh, who are you and what do you do?
1: Well, hi, everybody. I'm Dan Mall. Uh, I am the founder and director of Super Friendly, which is an agency based in Philadelphia. We have distributed teams and ad hoc teams built for clients. Uh, I'm a designer by background and a creative director. And um, I wrote a book about pricing called Pricing Design.
0: I'm super excited about uh, this interview. We had a sort of a, a catch up a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was. Yeah. And, you know, we've worked together in the past, haven't talked in a long time, decided to catch up and thought, hey, why don't we, why don't we do this on the podcast? All <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> yeah. Happy to do it.
0: Awesome. When it, did we first meet on TechCrunch or Entertainment Weekly?
1: Yeah, I think it was because both of those kind of happened like a- around the same time. So I think mm-hmm. TechCrunch might have been started early, a little bit earlier. And so that, I think that was the first thing we worked on together, right?
0: I think it was. Yeah. And so, you know, and I especially remember uh, Entertainment Weekly because we all met in person in New York. and
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And so dear listener, I had a front row seat to Dan working his magic and I've, I've never met anybody that has a better bedside manner when it comes to kind of navigating somebody, you know, a client through a design discussion and, and really uncovering what it is that they're trying to achieve and without, you know, without any kind of intimidation or being pushy or, or this is how we do things and I need to educate <laughs> you and, uh, it's just fabulous. So, uh, anyway, thanks for coming on. And, uh, what, what can we start, uh, I, I'd like to start with your book because uh, I think it's pretty okay. interesting. Yeah. You know, it, you know, I'm sort of singing your praises about your skills at your craft and your bedside manner with clients. But at a certain point, you also started putting out content around running a design consultancy. So how did that yeah. first happen?
1: Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I actually started as a developer. Um, I did not know. So that. When, When I was in school, I mean, I went to design school, but the program I was in was half design and half coding. And I really liked the coding side. And so my first jobs were, I worked with really great designers. And so I was like, well, I don't add anything to the design mix here, but oh, I could actually code the stuff that they designed and I could do that pretty well. So I started as a developer. And what I started to find was I wasn't involved in the conversations that I wanted to be involved in. Like by the time The project got to me. It was like, well, all the decisions are made; they're just handed down to me. So I was like, well, I I need to I want to be more involved. I want to have more impact. So let me let me move upstream. And that's when I learned to be a designer. And then as a designer, I even I still felt the same way too. Where I was like, well, I'm still not part of those conversations. (laughs) So let me be a you know whatever a, a UX person or a strategist or you know whatever the flavor of the week was. And then even there, I started to realize like, oh, like even even at the highest point of the project when the project starts, some decisions are already made by the sales team or the account team and so eventually i made my my way upstream into sales into like let me have the first conversations that the client is ever having with the studio or the agency and i found that's where you really uncover things like what is important to the project and that's where you really uncover value so moving all the way upstream made me realize oh now i understand what's important to the client and we have a blank slate to actually translate that into something that will work well for them and so we have free reign at this stage you know nothing's decided yet we have free reign to say, oh, you know what would be great for you? Maybe we shouldn't build a website. Maybe we should actually make an email newsletter for you. Or maybe we should make a a mobile app for you. Or maybe we should do an installation. Like, that was the point where creativity and value and delivering something great, like, all came together. Farther downstream, it was often too late. And so that's what kind of got me into that in the first place.
0: Wow. That's, I mean, it makes perfect sense when you think about it in that way. You know, you're just moving upstream so you can have more of an impact on the project. Because I know lots of developers and designers that I talk to they you know they feel like they're being handed you know decisions that they don't necessarily agree with so they're kind of forced into this order taker role where they they want to have those conversations but it's after the fact right and at the same time you know to to frame it as moving upstream so that you could start to have the impact that you want kind of requires that you get into that sales conversation which is a thing that that again designers and developers tend to they're a little bit allergic to that idea. I don't want to do sales. Like that's gross or, you know, that's pushy or I I'm not outgoing. I need to be a gregarious, you know, hand wavy type of (laughs) always be closing person. And they're kind of grossed out by that. But the fact of the matter is that that's what bad sales looks like. And good sales looks like what you just described, where you're collaborating with the client to make sure that, that everybody understands what outcome they want to reach, what business outcome they want to reach, and you know, working with them to perhaps guide them to the most effective way to get there, which, like you said, yeah. might not be a website, even though if that's what they perhaps called you to talk about.
1: Yeah, it's sort of obvious when you think about it. When, you, when you've done it enough, it's obvious. But what, I remember when I was a designer, I had no idea what sales looked like you know, because good sales is invisible. Right, when a good sales process happens, it doesn't feel like sales. What we know of sales is the sales that we see, which is like you know, used car salespeople, you know, like that, Mm -hmm. that kind of like really pushy, trying to sell you something you don't want or you don't want to buy, and so that's what we see as sales because we don't actually. When when good sales happens, you don't see it. You know, it just feels like the right conversation, and it feels like making things and selling things that people want and people buying things that they want, you know, and need, and so. So I, I had to kind of change my mind about what sales actually look like. And I was like, oh, good sales actually looks like just asking good questions and mm-hmm. being able to give good answers after a while, you know, not even on the spot. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that, like, kind of building up that skill was something that I was really interested in, and, and it was a new challenge for me as a designer.
0: Yeah, it's energizing and fun. Even the client enjoys it. Like when you're doing yeah. it right, the client's super energized.
1: Yeah, part of my favorite my, my favorite part about the sales process now is, like, coming up with options for the client. Like that to me is like the ultimate test of creativity. It's like, it's so easy to say, yeah, we'll build you a website because that's the most obvious thing, right? Okay, so fine, let's get that out of the way what else could we do for them, right? And I've come up with the craziest stuff that like, I'm like, well, let me just talk to the client about this and see if they would like it, see if it's something that would be valuable to them. And if it's not, you know, I don't want to sell it to them. But sometimes clients are like, actually, that was part of our five-year roadmap and we actually, you know, sunset that project because we didn't think that we could do it, but now it's coming back up. So like, it just opens a lot of doors that, you know, if you just go in pricing the thing that the client asked for already, you know, it's such a shallow way of looking at, at how to do business.
0: Right. I always refer to that as self-diagnosis because they're like, Oh, I've got this malady or I've got this symptom and this band aid is going to fix it. So right. look for, look, let's go buy band-aids. And you get there and it's like, you know, you show up and you're like, I don't know if a band-aid is really the right solution here. Let's talk about what you're trying to achieve. And, and maybe there's a, you know, maybe I can super glue that thing. Shut. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> it's exactly. kind of a gory uh, analogy. <laughs> I like it. So what does your sales process look like? You know, what's the, what does this invisible sales process look like? So walk us through, say like a first contact where your leads come from. How do they hear about you? What happens next?
1: yeah gotcha i actually uh, I tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago like i was I was working with a with a new uh person who's doing some sales for superfriendly and I figured, all right let me let me map out the sales process because I've never actually done that before so i I mapped it all out and I tweeted about it and, and I just tweeted like hey, would anybody want to see this and like I got a lot of interest in it, so I, I shared it so I have the the chart handy uh maybe put it in sh- in show notes or something Sure, yep. the The initial contact usually comes... It's usually pretty warm for Super Friendly, for the agency that I run. Um, And it's because, you know, I spent a lot of time and have spent many years and and the people that I work with have spent many years, like, you know, writing about what they're doing and and how they're doing it. And that attracts people, you know, like that um, blog posts and conference talks and workshops and webinars and all that kind of stuff. Like, I do a lot of that stuff and the people that I work with do a lot of that stuff. And so I would say... I don't know, 80, 90% of the time, somebody who's coming to SuperFriendly is like, hey, I saw you on this, on this you know, YouTube thing or I, I heard you on this podcast or I saw a conference talk that you did or I read this book that you wrote or I, you know, this chapter or whatever. And we need that. Like, what you were talking about is a thing that we need. So could we, could we talk about how you might do that for us? So it's usually a pretty warm introduction. Um, it's a pretty, a pretty warm contact generally. And so a lot of the conversation is about um, is less about like, are we a good fit? And then, and more about like dialing that in to say, like, is this moment a good fit right now? Like, so we, we've already sort of established that like you want the work that we do and we like doing that kind of work. So that is already kind of settled. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether or not they have the capacity for it, whether they have the right team for it, whether we have the availability for it, like that's usually what the conversation entails. And so, you know, when we usually it usually comes in through. Uh, an email or sometimes it's a Twitter DM or, or something like that or it's an introduction from a friend. Um, and then what I typically do is I, I typically say, you know, I've got a handful of like boilerplate questions just to get the 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 facts out of the way. So could you send this over? Sometimes clients will already send that. They'll say, "Hey, we put together a brief, or we I have some notes." Um, so sometimes they'll send that over. If not, I'll usually ask for that stuff, and I'll say, "Hey, let's get on a call." And then we get on the on the call, and we talk about all sorts of stuff. And and um, I, I follow a lot what what Blair Enns has been doing and writing about in his kind of four conversations. So mm-hmm. I, I combine it a little bit. Um, so one of the things that we that I do is try to have kind of a an evaluative probative conversation combined with a little bit of a value conversation yeah. to say to the client like I, let me see what is valuable to you you know like tell me about you know sure tell me about what you want and it's usually very tactical at that point oh we want a website because you know whatever reasons but when it, when we keep asking why well why do you want that and why is that important and what happens if you don't do that and you know well what's next after that you know like that starts to uncover a lot of a lot of different stuff and that's what we end up talking about mm-hmm. and so that those first conversations and i say conversations plural to say like most times it's two or three of those conversations it's not like you know it's not one conversation that i can go and write a proposal or anything like that it's like i need to know a lot about your business and that conversation usually goes one of two ways the, the first way that it goes is that sometimes clients are like why do you need to know what our annual revenue is? Yeah, And and that's a bad sign. That's like, okay, we're probably not going to be a good fit to work together. But then the clients that are receptive to it, the clients are like, oh yeah, we're happy to share that information with you because it'll help you to make a, a good proposal to us or help you to understand what you could do for us. Those are the conversations that end up going really well.
0: Mm, absolutely. Yeah, and you're, uh, you're referring to Blair's book, Price and Creativity, Blair Ann's uh, yeah. book, Price and Creativity, great book, very practical. Um, and I think even in the book, he he says... That, you know, he lists lists out these four different conversations, but not that they necessarily have to be different meetings that they could, you could kind of bounce back and forth between them in a single meeting or, you know, multiple meetings. But he's like, there's basically four things you're trying to accomplish uh, in, you know, in that initial contact or, you know, before you write a proposal anyway.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I tend to I tend to fall into that camp, which is like it's hard to make those conversations really separate because they just bleed into each other right. naturally, or at least the way that I do it bleeds into each other naturally. Me too, so yeah. we tend to combine all of those uh, into the same conversation.
0: Yeah, I I lump the whole thing under what I call the why conversation because as you said, you just have to ask why, 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 why to uncover, <laughs> yep. you know, the the what they're trying to achieve, like the the fundamental thing because they're operating at this. They, tend to be, at least the folks I'm dealing with, they, they tend to be already way into the process. They've already done a bunch of stuff internally and I'm, you know, I'm kind of like joining the show in progress and I didn't see the first 30 minutes of the program, <laughs> right. you know? So I'm like, can we back up a little bit? And you know, after they're done brain dumping, like, can we back up a little bit and, and put this in the overall context of the business? Like why, why not not do this? I mean, I, I, I can do this for you. It sounds like a good idea, but why do you really need to do it? This is going to be expensive and risky so i i 'd like to know what the reason is because i don 't want to take your money if i don 't feel like I can give you positive ROI, so on and so forth yeah and it it really is a feeling of uncovering it with them and it almost, it's almost it 's not quite to the the sort of therap- it 's not quite a therapy session, but it does make them sit back and think through, well yeah yeah, why are we doing this you know like we haven't really articulated that in a long time, or maybe the a single decision maker had a vision and, and you know, dropped the hammer and everybody's scurrying around like ants, like, let's get this done. But maybe they weren't privy to the, really the, the underlying, you know, why are we doing this? It's, it's not uncommon for, you know, people farther down the food chain to not ask that question. It's a little, it can feel a little, um, pushy is the wrong word. Uh, right. But it can feel a little impertinent. That's the word. And and like you said, if someone's like, uh, why are you asking this? Then yeah, definite red flag.
1: <laughs> yeah. Two, two quick stories about that. So I, I got on a, the phone with uh, this prospective client once, a gigantic organization that I was like super pumped to work with. I would love to work with them. And one of the first questions I asked was, you know, part of their thing was like, we want to raise more money. We want to, we want to get more donors. It was for a nonprofit. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I said, well, you know, what, what do you, what do you raise now? What's your current? What's your average, you know, yearly raise for from donors? And the guy on the phone was like, "I don't see why that's any of your business."
0: Yeah, and I well, was like, what? "Okay, we're good, uh, we're done all here." All right,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, thanks for the time, and you know, good luck to you. <laughs> right? Because like, it's it's absolutely my business. If you want me to help you make more money, I need to know what more looks like. Well, what does current look like, so that I know what more looks like? Yeah. I, you know, and so that was just a terrible sign. And then on the other side, you know, I had a client to the point that you brought up, like. This process, this sales process, it really quickly identifies when you're working with a middle manager or somebody that doesn't have the power or the acumen or the information to answer your questions well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times in that conversation, you know, when we say like, so, you know, what do you need the site for? You know, what do you need this app for? And, you know, what they'll, sometimes they'll be like, you know, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. And, and the conversation will kind of pause there and they'll go, you know what, let's, let's, re- let's pick this back up again, but I want to have my boss on that, on that next call. And I'm like, cool, that's great, because now we're talking to people who can make decisions about the project and have answers about the project and can respond well to us saying, actually, here's a different way to look at it. You know, here's a different way that you might, you might not have been thinking of. And they go, oh, yeah, that's, that actually could be really cool. And so when you're working with someone that doesn't have those answers, they're not going to be able to, to say, yes, let's do a project that's double the size for one and a half times the, the price, you know, because they don't have the authority to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, uh, to put it in sort of yucky sales terms, that's a great way to get past the gatekeeper. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, essentially, uh, you just, you just let them know that you can't move forward to a proposal stage without getting answers to these questions. Otherwise you're just shooting in the dark and making things up. So, you know, I would love to get answers to these questions. I'd love to work with you. So, you know, how can we do that? And, you know, the hope is that they'll be like, well, like you said, uh, let's, let's pick this up again. I'll get my boss on the, on the phone and, uh, we can, Work it out and get them answered.
1: Yeah. So I I know one thing, one piece of feedback that I always get when I tell this to, you know, freelancers or or new agency owners or anything, they're like, wait, like how many phone calls do you have with a client? I'm like, I don't know, sometimes three, four, six, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're like, well, how long's your sales process? And I'm like, oh, I mean, sometimes six months, a year. You know, like yeah. that. You know, and they're like, I can't believe that because one of the things that is so easy about billing hourly, right? It's like getting into a taxi. It's like as soon as you get in, you start the clock. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like, and so to so someone who's used to that, they're like, wait a minute. Like after the first ten minutes, I could just say, all right, well, it's going to be one hundred fifty bucks an hour. Let me know when you, you want to start. Mm-hmm. You know, but you have no mm-hmm. idea what you're doing yet. And so for me, what I find is like I, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a, a go big and go or go home kind of person, and mm-hmm. like I have. I don't mind doing a six-month sales process to get a million-and-a-half-dollar project, you know? like, right. like, And, and uh, you know, when I'm, sometimes I'm, uh, my apprentices are, are here in the studio and they're, like, kind of listening to these phone calls. And they're like, man, you've been talking to them forever. I'm like, well, what did you expect? Did you expect that I would have a 30-minute phone call with them and then they'd pay me a million bucks? <laughs> like, <they> just, <laughs> the return on that seems ridiculous, you know? And so, so I think that to sometimes, especially to get bigger projects or to get to to the meat of an issue, it takes these conversations. It takes this time to, to invest and to, you know, really spend time so that you know you're doing the right thing. And then you, and then on the back end, you get compensated for that, you know, for that effort, you know, because you're really digging into their business, sometimes even more than the client is, Uh, you know, and, and that is what you get paid the big bucks for. You know, it's not like, it's not writing code or, jumping into Photoshop or Sketch or whatever. Like anybody can do that. That's commoditized. But like people who can go in and analyze a a, a client's business and make good recommendations for them and make them double the money that they were making last year. Like that's worth it. That's worth a a truckload of money.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I saw a great tweet as an old joke the other day that was, uh, it was basically, uh, you start coding, I'll go find out what they want. You know, it's like classic hourly (laughs) billing kind of mentality. It's like, you're like, hey, can you build a website for us? Yeah, sure. What's your hourly rate? Uh, 150 bucks an hour? Oh, that sounds like <laughs> right. a lot. Okay, 90. All right, let's get started. All right, when can you start? Right now. All right, great. And then you like open up your code and you're like, wait, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. like here's some features. I haven't asked any questions. And uh, to me, that's the big the big difficulty in the mind shift of going to something like value pricing, for example, is in the initial meetings before you write the proposal is switching your brain from trying to uncover scope to, to uncovering business outcomes. Yes. And that for me, that was hard. That was, that was the biggest challenge for me. I went cold Turkey from you know working inside of a firm. I was managing a firm and we build by the hour and I got religion with regard to <laughs> value pricing and I left to start my own thing. And I still found my, I probably had between four and six phone calls where I was still caught myself asking questions about like, oh, you know, well, uh, you know, how many can, can a line item be on two invoices? You know, I'm asking like entity relationship diagram questions and, and object relational model questions. And how many screens do you think it's going to be? And None of that matters at an early stage because what real, all that really matters is figuring out what their outcome is getting a, a rough idea of what that would be worth to them uh, whether it's tangible or intangible there's some value there or they wouldn't be talking to you and th- when you get to the when you get there then I'd just do it completely backwards tell, you can tell me how you do it but um, you know I was I'd say like oh this you know this is going to be a million dollar thing for them even if, on conservatively this will be a million dollar thing for them it's worth a million dollars maybe it's going to make them a million dollars or maybe it's going to save them a million dollars or mm-hmm. whatever it is. And then I'll work backwards from you know. Then I'll set three prices because I love options and proposals. I always do three, and I'll come up with three prices that are less than a million dollars. And then I'll say, well, okay, what could I do? I call it giving myself a budget. Like, what could I do at fifty thousand dollars to help move this needle for the company? I'm not going to do everything, obviously, for fifty thousand, but I can do some things. And then yep. what would I do for one hundred and twenty thousand for this customer? Like, well, okay, if I had that kind of money. I could pull in some famous people, you know, like they were the best in their field and have them work on this particular part. And what, you know, what if I had, I don't know, 250,000, okay, what would I do there? So then I can credibly bring, you know, I think about scope after the price, after the value, I see it in go in that direction.
1: Totally. I I do the exact same thing. You you can't see me, but I'm nodding vigorously (laughs) as you're explaining this. I do it exactly the same way, which is, like, first got to know what it's worth to them, Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I I wrote a post about this, about break-even points in value pricing, Mm -hmm. that, like, One of the things I am looking for in every conversation is where is the point that it breaks even for them. Like, you know, if you are working with a let's say a higher ed institution, right? That's that's a common example that I get a lot where people go, yeah, but in higher ed, it's not about like the amount of revenue that they would make. Uh, I mean, maybe not directly, but indirectly, like because for a lot of higher ed institutions, like they want admissions, so if they build a new X, that gets them. More applications, more admissions, more you know, more people in seats, more butts in seats. How much is a butt worth? You know, like mm-hmm. what, what's that worth to them? And and so every every company has their own unit. Of, of economy, you know, and so for higher ed, that might be a person in a seat who's taking classes for a sales company that might be more leads, you know, for, uh, it might be about growing a community or growing a network, it might, be, you know, wh- whatever that might be. And if you can quantify it that way, then they tend, then, then you can have direct conversations about going like, well, if you got a thousand new students because of this, you know, what would that be worth? Would you that know? be a and, home and run? Might, yeah, right. Exactly. You know, and you can even, one of the things that we end up doing a lot is, is like, Taking guesses and and being okay about being wrong, like, well, if we got a thousand more students out of this, we think that's probably worth half a million dollars to you. And then we go, no, well, not really. I mean, it's probably closer to like you know three fifty maybe. Yeah. And you're like, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> all right. So we were off on the math, you know. Totally. Like, So, and that's, that's helpful, you know? And so, so yeah, I do it the exact same way. I forget who, I forget where I read this. It might've been like Ron Baker's book or something like that. Mm -hmm. It it was, it was a big revelation for me that value drives cost. It's not the cost drives price, right? So once you find out about the value, yeah, yeah, I love that because especially in the model that I have where I don't have a full-time staff, I pull teams together ad hoc for projects, you know, if a, with the million dollar option, like you said, I could bring on a hundred thousand dollar art director, or a, you know, or or a strategist that that's charging me two hundred K because I've got the margin for it in that option. If the value is only fifty K, I can't afford a hundred thousand dollar art director, you know, and so I have to push my costs down. I have to go and find a twenty thousand dollar art director and, to make sure that I can do it profitably. And then you know, and then the other thing related to that is sometimes there are projects where I go, I understand the value, we cannot do it profitably. You know? And so those are things that w- when I say like the, a project might have $20,000 of value, I don't know that I could be profitable to deliver $20,000 of value. I don't know that I could do that, but maybe another agency could, or maybe a freelancer could, you know? and so those are good referral projects. And so that, that really changed my mindset about it is once I understand the value, how far down can I push the cost you know, to make sure that my profitability, my margin uh, uh, is, is intact, but that comes only after you understand the value of the project.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And I say this all the time. In fact, dear listener, if you haven't listened to it already, there's an episode, uh, Ditching Hourly episode, called uh, "Value Pricing Cuts Both Ways," and it doesn't. It's value pricing is not a license to, to, you know, write million dollar proposals. If you're getting clients who are going to get massive value out of what your contribution to the outcome is, then yes, you can dramatically increase your annual revenue. Let's say but it doesn't mean that you can go into a, a mom and pop pizza place and expect to give them a proposal for a million dollars for their new website. You know, they, they will not recoup that kind of money. So it, like you can't charge more than it's worth. Boom. Yes. boom right. Yes. So the the value has to be there. What it's worth to them has to be there it has to be high enough for you to have some profit too. Like both parties profit. It's a, that was another huge, um, huge. I, I also think it was Baker and I'm pretty sure I think both things we're referring to were, were in pricing on purpose, but I'll actually check and put it in the show notes. Um, great book, very theoretical, but really good. And, uh, the, the concept of, of the double thank you, the mutual profit that yes, the money is flowing from the client to you, but the client is profiting if you're doing your job, right? They will get they a profit to. out of it too.
1: They, they have to. You know. One of, uh, Mike Montero wrote the foreword to my book, and, uh, and he wrote this great thing in it. He said, you, from reading this book, you will make more money than Dan will ever make from having written this book. And that's <laughs> the point, right? That's the point of the book. That's the point of value pricing is that your clients should make a ton more money than you do off mm-hmm. of this. Like, that's why you get to charge a lot because mm-hmm. they made more. You know, mm-hmm. if they were making less, why would they do business with you? You know, right. if, they, if they weren't breaking even at least, you know, much less being more profitable because of you, then there's not a good reason to hire you.
0: Yeah, they're going to regret having done it, which totally. which is a situation that billing by the hour sets up because just to loop back to what we were talking about earlier, you can get started before you know what business outcome they want. They have one. They wouldn't have called you if they didn't have one. They might yep. not even be able to articulate it without some right. assistance from you, but it's there or they wouldn't be sending you money so if you don't uncover that first and you start working 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 and you know you get to the top of your estimate like you estimate it's gonna be ten thousand dollars you spend the whole budget they've got nothing to show for it yet because you're kind of just driving around in the dark doing best practices and not actually moving towards some particular goal and they start to freak out because the amount that they've spent with you is starting to exceed what it was worth to them in the first place but now they've got this sunk cost And they're like, they've got a tough decision to make. What am I going to do is throw good money after bad and hope that I only spend a few thousand more, maybe, or, uh, just kill the thing and just lose the 10 that I've spent so far and just be feel burned either way. They're going to feel burned. It's not a good way to have long-term client (laughs) relationships. I mean, if you're listening and you're like, that doesn't happen to me, then, then great. You're excellent at estimating. You're excellent at getting scope up front and people can be good at that. I I know. That there are people like that out there, I know them personally, but still, it's extremely common for hourly projects, you know, especially software projects, design projects, to go over budget or for for buyer's remorse to set in because the the wrong conversations were had up front. Everybody's focusing on the wrong thing, so this is you know, like I said, value pricing cuts both ways. It doesn't mean you can just start writing million dollar proposals without getting really big clients who stand to benefit from your work, but. Even if you're doing smaller projects, you can get, you can have a really, uh, you can have that double thank you moment. Like when you buy a coffee in the morning and you both say, thank you. Like the owner says the, the coffee shop says, thank you. You know, and you say, thank you. Cause you both profited. You're happy with that transaction. That's what you want. And it's really hard to get that with hourly billing. It's one of the, th- it, I don't usually talk about that very much. Cause it's, you know, the, the sort of self-interest things are a little bit more compelling, I think, to get people to take action. But that's a huge one for me because that that was the reason I figured out hourly billing was nuts in the first place. Having never questioned it, you know, I was just like, oh, that's what you do. That's like how you, that's how you charge for what you do when you're a software developer. It's hourly. There's like no other option. Right. And over and over and over we were having, um, you know, I'm not going to say discipline. Well, yeah, I mean like clients who could have been happy, definitely not 100% customer satisfaction. We did not have anywhere near 100% customer satisfaction. And that drove me bananas. And I was like, how could we fix this? You know, it it didn't occur to me for a long, long time that the answer was to, you know, do fixed prices based on value and work backwards to figure out what the scope is. So before, so I'll shut up. And the, the, since we're talking about scope, especially with design. I think, I think developers get a little bit of a free pass here in terms of certain kinds of scope creep. You know, if you're building an API, the client doesn't care what it looks like, you know, right. But when you're doing visual, you know, things that have a visual component, everybody's got an opinion. And if you're giving these fixed prices, even though they're high and you've got a lot of margin, how do you manage the client through the delivery in a way that doesn't, doesn't, you know, basically have you indentured servitude to the client for the rest of your life?
1: Yeah, it's a a tough question to answer. And, you know, just like you and I are talking about this really fluidly. And I want to come back to a point that you made earlier, which is that, this is hard. Like you've written books, I've written a book. We do this all the time. We we put our reps in, and yet I still go back. And sometimes in in phone calls, I still go back to like, uh, well, you know, how many pages do you want? Like it's hard. It's just ingrained, right? It's hard to get away <laughs> yeah, from that. Yeah. And so you know, anybody listening, if it's hard for you to, it's hard for us to too. You know, one thing that that I've learned, and this is this is why I wanted to be more involved in the sales conversations in the first place, is that for designers, right, the the one of the big objections to value pricing is, yeah, but design's subjective, right? How do you value? How do you value price something that's subjective and so so for me i'm like well you have to find a way to make that objective right? That's like, that's a designer's job is to make it objective. And so when I coach designers on design process, that's one of the things that I'm coaching them on is like, you don't go in asking if your client likes red, you go in telling them why red is the thing that gets them what they want. You know, you may, you have to make it objective to them and then, and then you're on the same scale. You have the same criteria. And so to me, that starts in the sales process. That starts in the first conversation. You know, when you're billing hourly, if the client's like, cool, like when you just start right away and you're like, all right, I'm designing a homepage. Like, and then you sit down and start to design a homepage at hundred bucks an hour, you have no idea what kind of homepage you're making. Like, you don't know what the features are. You don't know what the content is. You don't know what it's supposed to do. You don't know what the IA is. Like, you're just going. And designers complain all the time about like, oh, man, I wish I could do something mind-blowing. I wish I could do something like, you know, original... I'll tell you what, it doesn't start that way. It doesn't start by just sitting in front of your computer and seeing what comes out. It yeah. starts by understanding the objective really, really well. Like That's what unlocks the design process. That's what makes it objective. And that, to me, starts in the sales conversation. Like When I talk to a client and I say, what do you want? And they can't articulate it well enough. And so we go round and round and round for you know phone call one through six. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we get to... And we need better employee retention, so we need to attract better employees out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's an amazing design Boom. brief. Yep. You know, like that's, that makes design so easy now, because yep. now it's really objective. And you can critique your design through that perspective. You can look at a screen and go, is this feature, is this button, is this placement going to get us higher employee retention? You know, And, and now you're, now everybody's on the same page. And so... When it comes to scoping, like this, however, however many pages come from that comes from the objective. How many pages do we need to get better employee retention? You know, like that is a much easier conversation to have, a much more focused conversation. I'll say, than like I don't know. I'll just start on the home page, I guess. Yeah. So now fake. I'm
0: nodding vigorously. It's like. <laughs> It's like, you you know those meetings, I'm, I'm talking to the listener, you know those meetings where you're sitting in a room and you're getting super frustrated because the client is like doing one of those clients from hell things that you hear about. And, and believe me, I don't believe there's such a thing as a client, well, I know there is certain, it's a fringe thing though. Like no, usually, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, usually it's like, usually it's a, it's a relationship problem. And you know, anyway, those meetings when you kind of get this client from hell and you're going around the room like, should this be blue or bluer? And and everybody's like, well, Facebook does it like this, and Google does it like that, and Twitter does it like this, and our competitor does it like that, and, well, you know, some people are colorblind, and you're just like, I'm just like, oh, man. And the problem is, the reason those meetings happen is exactly what Dan's talking about here, which is that nobody has defined the objective. Once you have the objective, you can measure, that, like, the designer doesn't even have to ask like you don't have to talk about what color blue yep you just be like i'm a i'm the one who knows how to achieve this outcome with color or, or layout or placement or maybe even copywriting or you know whatever it totally. depends on on you know uh, what they're hiring you to do and w- oh wait what are you trying to achieve oh you're trying to uh, win an award for your architectural work all right well i'm the architectural photographer I'm going to go win you some awards. You make a nice building, and I'm going to take an award-winning picture of it. Yep. Don't tell me how to light it. Don't tell me where to All stand. Right. Because, and, and here's, now, Mike Montero, since you mentioned him, has a great riff on this that's basically like, you don't go into a design review and say, what do you
1: think? What do oh, you think? No. Of, oh, It's that's the death. The, that's the kiss of death. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's death. You know, you don't go in and like uh, go through like w- your decision making process for like, oh, you know, well, we thought about this type and that type. Which one do you like better? Like, come on, who's who's the expert about type here? You know, it, it, it it's crazy. It's crazy.
1: I feel like you get to that point by building trust throughout a project. And one of my favorite phrases to use in the design process is remember when we agreed that right? like, <laughs> I, and, and that in order to say that to a client, remember when we agreed that um, the, the company culture was less important than your main sales proposition, <laughs> right? Like, remember yeah. when we, remember that? Like, and the client, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember when we said that. I remember when we agreed that. In order to say that, you actually have to have had a point where you agreed on that. Yeah. And to me, like, you can trace that all the way back to your initial conversations in and totally, sales. Totally. Remember in the proposal when we wrote that we were going to get higher employee retention for you? Mm-hmm. Like, remember when we said that was the most important thing? Have your have your priorities changed? If they have, that's totally cool. But now we need to go back to different steps of the process again. Yeah. Like so. So it's a cool if we change. Like, we can be agile. We can be we can be nimble. We can shift. But that's what we agreed on. And so that's what we designed this based on. You know. And then and, and I mean I love the stuff that Mike writes about this. You never go into a client going like, well, I made this blue and I made this red and I put this at the top and what do you think? You know? Because if, if we're playing the what do you think game. Yeah. Then they then they have full liberty to tell you what they think. Well, I hate purple. That, that's what I think.
0: Yeah, don't well, ask for people's <laughs> opinion.
1: Right. So in a design review, I am I very much direct, you know, I'm, I'm kind about it, I try to be gracious about it to the client, but I direct what I'd like feedback on and what I wouldn't like feedback on, you know? So at the end of everything that I'm showing, I'll point back to goals, all right? I'll, I'll say my, remember when we talked about this? Here's the manifestation of it in the header, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the navigation that we came up with because of that agreement that we had prior to this meeting. In the last meeting, we agreed on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're building upon that. And then at the end of after I show them all of the things that they should have expected to see. From the last meeting, then I say, and here are the things that we're not sure about. This is what we'd like feedback on: one, two, three, and four. Anything else is off the table. Yep. We want feedback about whether or not you think this does a, re- a good representation of how your company is portrayed, you know, or what, whatever the things are. These four things are the are the points of conversation. That's what we're going to talk about. That's what we want feedback on. Everything else, trust us. You know? Exactly. And, like even in the sales process, what one of the things that I I'm, I find myself saying over and over again is i have some clients that are a bit hesitant to to hire us right so they're so what they're trying to do is they're trying to make the statement of work ironclad it's like <laughs> well can we add this clause and this clause and i'm like listen if you don't trust us don't hire us yet like it's totally cool like we can we can delay the project let's do some more due diligence like i will refer you to to past clients that will give us referrals. I can send you material that we've written and case studies that we've done. You listened to this podcast. Here's a bunch of things that, should, that can give you more confidence in hiring us. If you're not confident yet, that's okay. But let's not start the project until you hire us because I'm going to cash in the trust at some point during this project. I'm going to say to you at some point, remember when you said that you trusted me when you hired me? I'm cashing that in right now. <laughs> We're not talking about type. Do you trust me? <laughs> like, yeah. and, and so I'm going to cash that in. And so I want, like, in order to get to that point, you have to have set the table for that long ago. And that's, mm-hmm. why, I like, you know, that's why I went all the way from being a developer all the way upstream to like, I got to be in these initial conversations because I need to be able to build upon those things throughout the whole project.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is so funny because we have different lines that we use, but we do the exact same thing. <laughs> so like my line for when somebody comes to me with essentially uh, a distraction kind of scope creep request, like, oh, you're working on the website anyway. Can you throw a carousel on the a product page? And my line is, uh, how does this contribute to the stated project uh, goal of the project? Wow, I love it. And, and they'll be like, well, you know, when we think about it. If they can make a case for it, I'll do it. Right. And, and yep. I agree, but they can't. You know, it's, it's (laughs) just, you know, it's like, oh, you know, while you're working on it, can you throw in a few other things? And, uh, another thing that you touched on that I, that I also have the same experience, different language is, uh, in the, in the sales process, if you let the client push you around in the sales process, why do you think they're not going to push you around when the project's going on? Oh yeah. So you have to be pushing back on things. You have to be challenging them and good clients will like that. They, if they're looking for an expert, if you're good at what you do, I mean, that's a precondition. And yep. if you're if, assuming you're good at what you do and you feel a sense of mastery over your craft and you believe that you can achieve outcomes for clients that are beneficial. Okay. Like, to, like, okay, let's just take that as a, as an assumption. That's like table stakes. Then when you get into that meeting, you want to be consultative with them. You want to, you want, I usually say you want them to convince you that it's a good idea to hire you. And in, in that meeting, I'll even, you know, and I do it with humor and, uh, but firmly, but with humor, I'll say like, once we get started, my mission is to make this project a success. You're probably going to ask me to do some things that I'm going to say no to because it threatens the success of the project. It's not about me thinking my way is the right way, or, you know, it's not a power struggle. I'm going to be a rabid advocate for this project succeeding and that success looks like whatever the home run was that they told me about. And And we're going to be measuring these leading indicators along the way. Like you referred earlier to, uh, increasing admissions, you know, like maybe it's that they want to increase admissions. Okay. So we can measure that along the way. We'll find a way to test it while we're working, make sure the car is still on the road and we're not in a ditch. And I, you know, just to, just to pile on your point, you got to tell them up front, like, I'm going to, I'm going to be saying no to you. Like you're going to ask me to do stuff that I cannot do. It'd be like going to a doctor and saying like, Hey doc, um, you know, what I like, could you, uh, could you just like my, make my legs longer? Like, no. <laughs> right. No, the, you know, there, there are reasons why that would be a bad idea, yeah, right. regardless of how much you might want your legs to be longer. You know, it's, it's you the professional. You cannot let like the, the client. Here's another thing that, that is related. The client is the expert of their business. They know their business way better than you ever will you are the expert of your thing, whether it's design development, whatever your thing is. And those two things need to intersect. And there sort of needs to, here's another line I use. I'm going to retain veto power on certain things, because if I don't, then why are you even hiring me? Hire someone that you can just boss around. And, you know, so, but you have to respect that they do know what's best for their business. So if they, I tell this story all the time about um, a big you know, Fortune 50 client working with a designer, and the Fortune 50 client was asking the de- designer to do things that, in, in terms of beauty or um, you know art, that were ugly and cheap looking. And they were in this; they were sort of locked in mortal combat over this. Like, but you know, I don't want to add those like bursts and this like cheesy type. And it's going to make it look, it's the whole, it's going to make the whole piece look cheap. And, and finally, after much arguing, the client was like, yes, we want it to look cheap. We, our prices are not the cheapest. So we want the whole thing to appear less expensive. And Mm. so we're driving you in a direction to make it. But there was never a conversation up front. And I'm not saying one party was right or one party was wrong, but there was never an initial conversation around what are we trying to achieve here? We're trying to sell more widgets. Oh, okay. Right. Well, who do you sell them to? Who wants, you know, and the, you get involved in that kind of a business conversation up front. and then the designer, like, you you know, you're like, boom, I, now I've got a brief, I can go like, I can do all sorts of things. I can do user testing. I can do uh, prototypes mock-ups and uh, focus groups and all these things to make sure that we're going to sell more widgets. We're going to get more enrollment. We're going to, you know, all the indicators are moving up into the right about this button being red.
1: Yep. Totally. I, I, um, I think that if you can establish that in the in the sales process, if you have that mutual respect for your client and they have it for you, that the pro, you know projects go well, you know because of that, and and you can have healthy conflict that leads to good products, that leads to good work mm-hmm. because of that. You know, I I don't know if you're a sports fan or if you ever read Grantland. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Grantland was like a sports blog that was by, by ESPN, and, and um, Bill Simmons was, was one of the writers who writes The Ringer now, um, and we worked on the Grantland uh, redesign, and so um, one of the things that happens, like we, we did good design work in that project, and we did a ton of different versions for them, and there's one point where we did a version that I really believed in, and, uh, and the client didn't, right? And so I had a conversation with him, and he was like, he's like, Dan, do you believe that I know my users? And I was like, I do. And he's like, well, then you got to trust me on this one. He's like, I think that this is the right thing. He's like, I think that I think that this version that I'm asking for is the right thing for them, and I disagreed. But I was like, "All right, like I'm with that. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I hear you. You know, so I was totally willing to do the version that he was talking about, even though it wasn't the version that I thought was right. Because I have to believe that he knows his users better than I do. Right? You know, if if I know their users better than he does, that's they're in trouble. You know, that's mm-hmm. a problem. I just got here. You know, he, he's been working on this thing. Um, so like, I think that's the kind of healthy conversation that you have on a project. Now, you know, Grantland got got shut down so (laughs) <laughs> see, what he, see what he knew. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but like that, that's a conversation I want to have with clients on the project is where we do, we, we are going to butt heads, right? It's, an, it's inevitable when we're going to be that close on a project for three months, six months, a year, like we're going to butt heads. We're going to step on toes. Mm. But if you have that mutual respect that, you, that starts in the sales process where they go, all right, we're going to battle on some of these things, but it's going to be okay. Like it's going gonna, it's gonna to battle test these products that we're making and these projects that we're doing. You know, I, I find that those are my favorite projects.
0: Yeah. And even though you are are sort of this sort of wrestle It's not, well, your butting heads is a great way to put it. It's not really a wrestling match. I almost said that, but it it's this, it's creative friction and, yeah. and yeah. each party has their area of expertise and they need to, they need to come together and there's going to be some friction there. And, uh, but at the end of the day, it is a mutual respect thing. I, I I think that's a great way to put it because a lot of times when I say to people that, you know, don't don't go into a design review and say, What do you think? And and the pushback that I'll get from designers who aren't quite, it's not clicking with them yet, is like, oh, so the so the client shouldn't have any input on their design. And I'm like, no, the input that they should have is at a completely different level. Like they're gonna yeah. have tons of input, but not about my job. They're right. gonna have input, they're gonna set the goals, they know their they know their products better than I do, they know their users or their clients or their customers or their guests better than I do. They're the expert at that. If they sell sneakers, they are the expert of sneakers and yep. I'm not. But if what we're trying to do is sell more sneakers to a particular kind of person, then all right, you know, now we have got something to work with and then you've got this, um, a part, it's a partnership. And if you're not, you know, not to always harp on hourly billing, if you're not, um, you know, if it's not this meter running, where like, yeah, change whatever you want. I don't care. The more, more you change, the more I make. Right. You know, if you're both on the same side of the table, even though there's a sort of creative friction happening, you're, you're still partners, you're still trying to get the same outcome. You're still driving to the same thing, but, you know, for, for different reasons. The, the client is financially motivated to want the project to reach a successful co- conclusion because then their goals are going to start to, you know, it's probably their, whatever their goal is, let's say it's making money or whatever. Uh, more applications or whatever the thing is, they want that to happen as soon as possible, because the longer it takes, they're losing, you know, they're losing out on all that money that they could have made in the six months while they were waiting. And you as the provider, whether it's design development, copywriting photography, whatever you, since you don't make any more money, if it takes longer, you want to satisfy the client. You want to get them to that that end zone as quickly as possible because that means your costs are lower and therefore you profited more. So you yep. both have a financial motivation to get the thing done well and fast. So yeah, totally. It's it's great. It's great. But
1: well, it. well, one of the things I love about value pricing is that for me it's been the most successful way that I could come up with a balanced project. Right, a project where it's not like the client is dominant and I'm subservient or I'm dominant and the client's subservient. Right. It's not, it's not one is the ruler and the other is, is submissive. Mm-hmm. It's that we both come to the table. Like it, it's, to me, it's it levels of playing field to say, we're going to be really good at this part and you're going to be really good at that part. And it's going to be worth this. And we're both going to be work, working toward this. So let's be partners. It, to me, it's been, it's been the most successful and, and uh, clear way to say that, um, I I just never was able to do that. You know, I tried hourly billing before. You know, mm-hmm. and and because it was the easiest thing to do, and because I didn't know what else to do, and it just tipped the scales too much. Like it was too finicky. It was too fragile. Like you know, sometimes it felt the client felt like, well, I'm just being taken advantage of because you're just running the clock. Yep. And then other times I felt like, well, this time isn't worth it. Even though I'm getting paid for this hour, it's not time well spent. You know, so the, the scales tipped too too easily in that model. And you know, I, I have friends that that say that they achieve good balance with hourly billing. I don't believe them, but you know, (laughs) I'm sure like, cool, like whatever, whatever model works for you. But for me, value pricing has been the thing that has been been able to help me uh, say that more clearly to the client than, than any other methodology I've tried.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think I mentioned earlier, if you're amazing at your estimates and like you're always coming in on budget, you have a, you did essentially give them a price. Sure. The problem happens when, uh, you're having the wrong conversations up front and then you don't hit your estimate. That's, and that is really, really common. So I'm not saying there aren't outliers who are amazing at, at, you know, defining scope up front and understanding how long it's going to take them. Like the person who's doing the sales meeting is also the only person doing the development. They've been doing it for 20 years. They know exactly how long it takes them to do things. And they say, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be, you know, 200 hours times my hourly rate and they hit it. So essentially they gave the person a price because they, it was real. But the problem is it is an estimate. And if you're not great at it, then things go horribly wrong because you probably yep. had the wrong conversations at the beginning. Yeah. So it's, it just encourages scope creep and it encourages this trust fracture between the two parties. The incentives are, are, are polar opposite. It's better for the client for it to be done quick. It's better for the d- designer or developer for it to take a long time. So, totally. we,
1: yeah. I feel like if, it, if hourly billing gives the wrong anchor on the project, like the the anchor, the thing that has to stay fixed is the estimate. Then, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you're billing hourly, you live and die by your estimate. Right. And and with value pricing, you live and die by the outcome. Right. So, so if you live and die by the outcome, then the estimates can change, right? Then you have freedom around the estimate. I, we change our estimates all the time. You know, we say, Hey, we are doing this thing and we think we'll be able to finish it in two or three weeks. And then we learn a new thing and we're like, Oh, this blows the doors open. This is great. Like this would actually help get the outcome to a higher level. You know, we think it'll be an extra week on it. It's Mm -hmm. not going to cost you anymore. You know, and the client's like, all right, well, you know, it doesn't cost me anymore and we get a better outcome. Yeah, great. Let's spend the extra week. Yeah, you know, and, we're, and we're already covered because the margin's great enough. We already know that we're profitable. Like it's, it, it allows us to be much more flexible about how we achieve the outcome than having to live in die. Well, we said nine weeks, so we got we to nail nine weeks.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a funny thing people bring up about ads. Like, oh, I, I would love to do value pricing, but we're, we do, we're agile, so we can't do it. And I'm like, no, that's just, no, no. You, right, you, it works so much better. Right, it's so much better. Because then you can go all over the place. You can learn, 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 learn. But you mentioned it, and I'm going to hammer on it. You have to have high margins to give yourself that freedom. Otherwise, you totally. will put yourself out of business.
1: I, I uh, forget if I mentioned this in, the, in my book, but it's a, in a podcast somewhere. It's that like, I, you know, I did a project once where we scoped in our initial estimates. We scoped three rounds of design, you know, and we ended up going 13 rounds because the client gave us good feedback on every round. And, you know, and we and it, it just wasn't there. And normally, you know, and in around, whatever, nine or 10, the client was like, are you going to send us like a change order or something? I was like, nah. And they're like, well, why not? I'm like, well, because we're good. We're covered. Like, Mm -hmm. it's fine. You know, like you're giving us good feedback. This is good for the project. We believe it. Like, we think you're giving us good feedback until we got to round 14 where the feedback wasn't very helpful. And I called the client and I said, hey, I don't think round 14 is going to matter. And she was like, yeah, all right. You're Mm -hmm. right. Right, and yeah. it, it was because I gave her ten free rounds to her. <laughs> if they felt like ten free rounds to me, we were just doing what was right for the project, you know. Exactly. And so it, that flexibility existed because our margins were, you know, one hundred and fifty percent margin on that project, you right. know, or something like that. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, cool. As long as the client, as long as you're good with extending four weeks, extending your deadline four weeks, which they didn't have a hard deadline, so they're like, yeah, that's fine, you know. Then we could be really flexible in that project.
0: Yeah. Let me call out something. It's a little bit of a, it's related to what you're saying is that a lot of times clients will be super worried about deadlines and hitting milestones and all of this stuff. They are in that habit. Maybe not all the time, but a lot of times they'll have these phony deadlines because it's not because they actually care about the deadline. It's because they're used to the meter running and it's not that they're really worried about the deadline. They're worried about going over budget. So even, even when you're giving somebody, you know, I would, somebody would say like, I'd give them a, a fixed price based on value. So here's the price. And they, they want to know, well, when's it going to be live? And I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's going to be a collaboration. It's, it's, it's impossible to say, I'm not in control of it. No one is the CEO of your company. Couldn't drop a hammer and say, this has to be done by this. It's a fantasy. Right. So, you know, we can rush it if you want, but I, I'm not in a rush. Are you in a rush? Then well no, we're not really in a rush. We want it done as soon as possible, but, there's not a particular date. I'm like, well, I want it done as soon as possible too, because the longer it takes me, the less I make. So yep. let's just trust that we're both, we want it done tomorrow. If I could snap my fingers and be done tomorrow, that's what I would do. I mean, I want to achieve this goal at the highest possible quality. Cause writing code, there's this concern that you're going to cut corners. We want this done super high quality. I'll give you a bug free guarantee for a year. So that it ensures you that I, it's in my best interest to, for this code to be good and maintainable and bug free. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do it as fast. Like, look at the incentives. Why would I take longer? But I'm not going to promise a deadline because then we start focusing on the wrong thing. Start thinking about sign off and that's bad for the client. It's about you'd be rushing things and where would we cut corners? We'd cut corners on quality and I don't want to do that. So let's just give it the time it needs. We don't know what that is yet, but just be, you know, just read it, reiterate to them that, it's not going to cost them more if it takes longer because they are used to it costing more if it takes longer. So you kind of have to disabuse them of that notion and just continually remind them that, Nope, I'm not going to send you a change order. Uh, I built everything into my price. That's why it's more expensive because you're not taking that risk. If you want to go, you know, they come to you and say, well, you know, you're twice as much as the next quote. I'm like, well, the next quote was probably an estimate. And if you want to roll the dice with them, great. Just call them up and say, Hey, will you stand behind this price? Like not to exceed. They're gonna say no. If they say yes, go with them.
1: Right? But, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
0: I would go with them too. But they're not going to. So, I, you know, that's why I'm more expensive.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I I love that. I love playing the other side of it too, which is like sometimes, you know, with a client, I'm like, we'll launch whenever you want. You want to launch next week? Sure, we'll <laughs> launch what we got. Is that what you want? <laughs> and they're like, well, no, it's not going to be complete. I'm that's like, great. So, oh, so that's then, what so do you good. like? like what what are you afraid of well we're worried that you're not going to you're not going to spend the time to do it right okay so now we're back to trust again yeah. like, okay so now let's, now we can get now we're at the root of the issue let's slow it down like it's fine if you don't tr- if you don't believe that we have the integrity to do what we say don't hire us that would be a foolish decision. if i were your, if i were advising your company i would advise you not to hire that vendor Yep. Right. And that vendor is me. Mm-hmm. So don't hire me then if that's the case. Instead, spend more time with me. Like I'll ta- I'll let me walk through a bunch of case studies with you. I'd be happy to do that. Let me introduce you to former clients who and, and, and tell you how we earned their trust. Like, all you have to go on is my word and my portfolio. So let's spend as much time with those two things as as you want to for you to feel comfortable that I'm not going to extend the project unnecessarily. Why would I, like like you said, (laughs) I have zero incentive to do that. In fact, I have incentive to do the opposite. I want to finish this project as quickly as possible. What I want, and I say this to clients all the time, what I want is for you to have no feedback so that we speed through all of this, right? (laughs) Like, I make a thing, it's perfect, and we push it live the next day. Like, that's, that's the perfect project to me. And I think it's the perfect project to you too, right? And they're like, well, yeah. I'm like, okay, so let's shoot for that. Now, it's not gonna be realistic, because you're probably gonna have ideas, and I'm gonna have ideas. But, but we both, let's agree that our incentives are to short circuit that as much as possible, right? Mm -hmm. like so the only thing that you're worried about then is me being unethical to you by doing by phoning something in that's not going to be good for you and if you believe that i'm going to do that no contract is going to fix that no price is going to fix that no estimate no deadline none of those are going to fix it don't hire that vendor if you don't believe that they're going to do the work for you if you believe you're going to get screwed over don't do the project
0: oh yeah (laughs) yeah i could not be nodding harder and especially (laughs) the mention of the contract thing like i mean I'm not even going to go down the contract rabbit hole. So I've got a better question. Let's keep it, keep it to pricing. So yep. how do you, you know, you know, by the way, dear listener, Dan's not exaggerating when he's talking about seven figure projects. Like that's a thing. And what I'm curious though, is how do you, how do the payments work? So we're saying like, uh, you know, no deadline. It'll be done when it's done. It'll be done when it's right. You know, how do you, how do you, you know, you ask for hundred percent upfront. Is there like a deposit then 30 days? Like, how do you usually do that?
1: Yeah, so I have a starting point, but one thing that really like unlocked all of the like, unlocked the value pricing even more to me is realizing that the the cash flow is also a point of negotiation, right? Where like mm-hmm. we can negotiate on that. So what I typically ask for, and and actually I don't even ask for it when I send a client a statement of work, it's just in the statement of work. Here's the payment structure. Here's the payment schedule, and what I start with generally is uh, half upfront and then the the remaining fifty percent amortized to the first of the month of every month we 're doing the project, so if it's a if it 's a 12 month project, fifty percent up front and then fifty percent divided by eleven and and due on the first of every month that way, I have regular cash flow mm-hmm. um, I, You mentioned this earlier, and so this is like a, a bit of a tangent, but like I almost never will do payments on approval or on milestones because i don 't want clients to i don't want it to be based on on approval because you know, they could they could withhold approval for any given reason. And so I say, all right, I, I know that I'm going to get paid June 1st, July 1st, August 1st, September. You know, I can cash flow all of it. Now, some clients are like, well, we can't do that for, for lots of reasons. Some fake, some real. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes a point of negotiation. Oh, okay, you want it to be one payment up front and one payment at the end? So what that means for me is the risk is I have to make one payment last until the very end of the project, which I don't know when it is. You don't know when it is either. We can estimate, but we're, we, we're both... there's there's some margin of error there. Mm -hmm. And so the risk is higher for me. So if you want to do two payments, then what I want to do is 60-40 instead. You know, and so that becomes a conversation point with the client. And usually with the companies that we work with, it's not just the person who's hiring us, it's that person plus legal, plus procurement, plus finance, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of people to kind of loop in there. And so typically what I'll do is I'll try to, I'll try to have terms that, again, I, what I'm shooting for is a balanced project, one where we're not taking advantage of them and they're not taking advantage of us. What do I want on payments? I want good payment, profitable, a profitable project with regular cash flow right? That's my incentive on the payment side. What does the client want? They want to know that they're paying for good work and that they're not going to get stiffed on the work. So how do we build a payment structure and a contract and, a, and a, uh, an MSA and a statement of work that marry that? So to me, like those things represent how the project is going to go. That process is a good, is a good uh, test cycle for how the, re- the rest of the project is going to go. So, so that's what usually I put in my statement of work is 50% up front, the rest amortized. Um, but I'll, I'll, a lot of times I'll say, you know, clients will say, well, well we, can't, we can't do that. Or it's a little bit too high for, you know, the price is too high. Like, we get the value. You're right. It is worth that. But we just can't pay that right now. And I go, all right, well, if, if you pay it up front, I could give you a 6% discount. Yep. Yeah. Right. So we'll do 94 percent up front if you want to do that. And that way it alleviates some of my risk and I'm alleviating some of your risk. So to me, I, I look at payments as risk mitigation on both ends. And it's a conversation point about how much risk from each end can we take can we take away?
0: Oh, that's so. Yeah, 100 percent agree. You articulated that better than I do. That's fantastic. The and I just want to kind of point out that what aren't you negotiating? You're not negotiating the dollar amount you know, it's obvious, I mean, you're saying this, it's right. that's what you're describing, but notice that it gives you something to negotiate on so that you can meet them halfway and balance the risk. But you're not, they're not saying it's too much. It's not sticker shock. They're not arguing with you, but like, oh, could you, you know, could you do it for, is that your best price? Could you do it for, you know, 20% less than that or whatever. It's like, you know, I'm, I am, I have literally never, like I when, I'm, when I put together a, a proposal, I, th- I think really hard about it before I send it. Cause I'm like, like I'll put it down and I come back to it the next day and say like, look at that. And I'm like, all right, am I gonna, is this going to close at this price? Cause I am not. Cause I, you know, in a case like where I, I really want the client for some reason, I really would love the, the, you know, the logo on my website or whatever. It would just be a good project. Right. I'm like, I am not going to lower my price. Like I just don't do that. Yeah. So I look at it and I'm like, can I make a case for this price? Like next day, I'm like, can I make a case for this price? I'm like, yeah, I do. I, I do. I have a case for this price. Okay. Or, and if I don't, I'll lower it or change it or I'll think it through and like rework it. But that is the price. If they yep. don't, if they want to negotiate the price, we're not working together. But I will, I ask for, yeah, I, you know, I'm usually, I try to make projects smaller, not bigger, because I'd like to have a lot <laughs> yeah. more smaller projects because I don't put teams together. And I don't want to take all that risk. So I try to do more like a phased approach and do like, you know, just kind of, I, I, that's how I manage the risk. Yeah. So, uh, and I also don't have the patience to have like a nine month sales cycle. I just don't. <laughs> so I, what right. I try to do is make small and like minimize them, small them. That's not a word. Uh, I like it. I try to minimize them into phases and you know, maybe it's different with development. Who knows? I don't know, but uh, it's probably just personal taste, but I'm like, okay, I mean, that's the, that's, this is the price. And then I'll say hundred percent upfront. Like, I just like, I don't even talk about it. It's just like stated very plainly in one sentence because if somebody's going to, if somebody's going to freak out about, about something, it's going to be that because it's a very bold request. Uh, You know, I mean, we're still talking like six figure projects. You know, it's, yeah, it, totally. it, it's a lot of money to give somebody upfront and it, they need to have a lot of trust. All of that, all of that that you said before is super true. And a lot of times they're going to, if, if they're going to freak out at something, it'll be the hundred percent upfront request, not the dollar amount, because I've probably right. done at, over years of getting better at this. I've probably done a pretty good job guesstimating the value to them and giving a, you know, a couple you know, three prices that are totally reasonable, given that we agreed on this particular outcome and the value of it. So yeah, I'll get totally. the people, it. they'll be like, well, how about 50% upfront and 50% on completion? And they'll be like, well, I don't want to put the pressure on you guys to like sign off too soon. And that, you know, if we have a milestones or, uh, you know, a launch date and that's the sign off, that's in my experience, it's always too soon. You know, there's going to, there are going to be things that are wrong. The paint's not dry, dries wrong. The cement's not dry, whatever you want metaphor you want to use. there are going to be surprises after that. I don't want to, write up, you know, some change requests or a new project to address these f- future issues. Let's just let it freeze like a lake. And at some point we're going to know that it's done. We It's safe to walk out there. You know, we launched it, but launch is not when it's done. Uh, there's usually, yep. for me, the projects I do, usually after launch, there's still, you know, stuff. There's still stuff that happens. There's always stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, one of the things I learned when I was doing, when I was billing hourly or, or by time, is that where do you negotiate? I think I think this is good, you know, for anybody that, that bills for time. Stop doing it. But all right, if you're <laughs> going to keep doing it, like you uh, you negotiate on scope. Right? That, you, if you're going to negotiate the price, it's not, can you do the same amount of work but for 10% less? No, the right way to negotiate that is, sure, I could do 10% less on the price if I do 10% less work. Like, that's, that's fine. I'm happy to do, like, if you want to take 10% off the price, let's take 10% off the work, too. And so what I learned is to negotiate on scope. Now, one thing that's changed in doing value pricing is I'm not worried about scope anymore. Because if I'm, if I'm pricing well for outcomes and I've got good margin, I have freedom to let the scope maneuver and, and be squishy for the product part of the part of the fun of the project is finding out what the scope is right and 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 working on that actively with your client like that's that's part of like seeking an outcome and seeking a goal and so i want the the freedom to do that and one thing that I, i talk to clients a lot about is sometimes they say well, why is this price so high? Like sometimes they're like, this is like 10x what we got from the the, the other vendor that we're you know that we're talking to. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this is why is because what I, where I found projects to be successful is when we have space to maneuver, we have space to change our mind, we have space to to walk back a couple steps, we have space to redo things, we have space to try other things that may not work, you know, all within the bounds of this project, all within a, the bounds where I'm not going to charge you any one more cent than this price. So this is the all in price, mm-hmm. and so this price gives us all the space that we need to be able to do that stuff. And so, to me, negotiating on price means negotiating on scope. If I don't have a scope, there's no negotiation on price. Really, what we're talking about is whether or not that outcome is, is, is worthwhile for them. And in proposals, the last two proposals that, that we wrote, uh, we included... Right next to the price, this is the break even point that we believe We believe that a thousand students you know admitted will get you to this break even price or we believe that you know x amount of more people to your mailing list or, or ten more leads a month gets you gets this price to be worth it for you and we put it right next to the price to say like this is the this is the thing that we want you to negotiate on if you want to negotiate on anything tell us that we're wrong there tell us that the math is wrong so because then we're happy to rethink that like that's okay for us to go back to the drawing board for but it's not like whatever price you come in at we're just going to try and shave 10 percent off of it like i hate that stuff i would rather go in and say this is a balanced price it's fair to you and it's fair to us like I don't want to start high and then I expect that they're gonna bring us down. Like I don't negotiate that way. You know, I do A lot of people do. My dad does that all the time. Mm. You know, I, I just don't do that. I don't have the patience for that. Like I have I have the patience for a nine month sales cycle. I don't have the patience to like uh, just like go back and forth on like, yeah. well, how about how about five thousand? Well, how about seven thousand? <laughs> how about sixty five hundred? Oh my gosh! Like that, I'm just like go away. Like I, <laughs> yeah. You know, and and I think that you know one thing that that's worth saying there is that that is a privilege to be able to do, right? Like there. in order to do that, in order to walk away from a project for that reason, you know, they're like you've got to have leverage to do that. Mm-hmm. And some things that create leverage is, one is if you have a stacked bank account, great, you can walk away from whatever. You know, if you're good on cash and you don't need the cash, well then, then you, you can walk away from projects. But the one thing that I've learned is, I don't always have a stacked bank account. <laughs> I can't always walk away from it. But what I have learned to walk away from is, Bad projects, even though there's money associated with them. Like, they're just they're too expensive. Like, bad projects are just too expensive. And what I would rather do is go to the bank and get a loan or see if I could borrow money from a friend or a relative, you know, to pay payroll than, uh, than, than take on a bad project because it just costs way more. You know, yeah. than, like that, like, oh, well, you know, it's like 60K and like I, you know, I could use the cash. Well, then it turns into a project that should have been, you know, half a million dollars.
0: Yeah. And you're still because, working on it. Like, and you're still working on later, it. And, like, oh. and now I
1: can't take on other work, you know, and now it ties me up and like all of that stuff, it just has too much cost to it. And mm. so to me, that's the leverage that I've, I've, that gives me confidence is like, I won't sign bad projects, you know, as, and, and like, I violate my rule, you know, every now and again, because I'm human. Mm. Um, but I try to like, stand on that. Is like, if it's a bad project, it's not going to work out for either. The client's not going to be happy and I'm not going to be happy. So w- why do it? Like mm-hmm. the cash wasn't even that good, you know, maybe there's a price like maybe, you know, if if, there, if that was a hundred million dollar project, maybe, you know, like, <laughs> all right, I could stomach it, you know, but I, I haven't had a hundred, a hundred million dollar project yet.
0: Oh, man, it's so good. So, so maybe we could close on uh, your thoughts about how someone, you know, it's like, I get this sometimes you feel like, oh, yeah, it's easy for you, you know, you you can walk away from projects, but I can't. So what do you when you're sort of counseling uh, younger designers who are trying to make this leap, try to escape from this hourly trap. What are some some bits of advice that you could give maybe people who are listening who are just this feels unattainable, like uh, you know I'll never get there?
1: Yeah, gotcha. I I um I'll take a little bit of a long way around that. I read I think it was on the Basecamp blog. Maybe um, there was a, a post that they wrote about Warren Buffett and how Warren Buffett never schedules meetings more than like a day out or something like that. <laughs> And every and the feedback is always like, well, yeah, because he's Warren Buffett. But he, Warren Buffett has been doing that since before he was Warren Buffett. You know, that was just a thing that he did. It was a thing that he decided to do. And you might argue that he became Warren Buffett because of stuff like that, right? Like, it it wasn't that that came once he became Warren Buffett. That was what made him that. And so I think there's a little bit of that for designers. It's not that like, oh, well, you could do that because you have, you know, X thing that I don't have. Sometimes you just gotta start doing it, right? And so how do you do that with confidence? It's kind of related to the, the point that I just made, which was like, you have to create the leverage for yourself. You have to create the advantage for yourself. And some advantage might be, you know, like, what, this, is what, this is the way that I started when I first started freelancing, was like, I took every project, it, doesn't, it didn't matter how bad it was, but for a purpose, and that purpose was I'm going to build up a bank account, I'm going to build up a reserve of cash that after three projects I had enough that I could walk away from the next crappy project. Like, it, it doesn't take much. It just takes having that extra thousand bucks in your bank account. You know, that extra five hundred bucks to go. Yeah, you know what? I would rather take my girlfriend out this weekend. You know, I would rather. You know, I would rather just watch movies this weekend than work on that crappy project. And having that little bit of extra reserve. You know, it doesn't have to be. You know, your six months emergency fund. You know, that little bit of reserve for cash for me was was what helped me kind of have that confidence to go. All right, I can be a little bit more choosy now. And then you just keep building that stuff up. You know, be smart with your projects. Be profitable. Like do 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 good work. You know, sometimes take projects for money. Like in the beginning, but like let that cash ride you out. I was just talking to, to a friend who's an agency owner, and I asked him the same question yesterday. I had lunch with him, and I was like, "How'd you get past the like you know working paycheck to paycheck?" And he's like, "Well, in the beginning, we took everything." And in that first year, taking everything meant that now in our 20th years of business, like we're still riding that, like that little bit of extra cash from every project, just building that reserve, building that reserve, building that reserve. Now we can walk away from whatever we want because we've built that up over the years. You know, so it doesn't take much. It's just a little bit at a time. But, you know, that's what I I suggest. I I know a lot of freelancers that have started that way too, and they're killing it because they're, they're able to be more and more choosy with that, just that little bit of extra that comes from every project
0: yeah Blair Enns talks about the the stench of desperation that emanates from you if you need the project for the oh, money. It stinks. oh it's terrible <laughs> they can sense it it's just yeah. you can't you cannot hide it so you really need to be I, you know I, I always call it like you got to have your keep the lights on money if if you are not sure where your next rent payment is coming from and some just awful. I'm not saying like a bad client or an evil person or anything like that, but you just know you're not going to be a good fit. Like you just yep. don't communicate well with this person. They're in an industry that you're not really liking or whatever. It's just whatever. It's just not going to be a great project, but you're like, nah, but I need that thousand bucks really bad right now. Right. It's going to come through. You're going to roll over. You're not going to push back in the sales meeting. So, you know, when they're, you know, so don't come crying to me when you're still working on it six months <laughs> later and you're on revision 15 because, yeah. you know, and they're and they're like, we're not paying any more of these invoices. You, you know, you said this was only going to be X, and like, oh, it's just nightmare. Your your life is your life. This is something I haven't talked about in a long time, but your quality of life when you're not working on the clock. For me, it was just like night and day. I mean, oh yeah taking that tension out of every single interaction with the client of them constantly thinking, well, how long, that's, how long is that going to take you? How long is this going to take you? Like they have to make a buying decision every time they're going to pick up the phone or, or suggest some change to the scope or, you know, maybe do it like this. And every single time they do something like that, they're thinking, oh, how much is this going to cost me? How much is this going to cost me? And so there's this constant, constant internal struggle that they're having that bleeds through in both directions. It's just, it's just awful. Stop doing oh, it. Please stop doing
1: it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, th- that's why I like a, a long sales process is because it gives you t- a chance to test out your client, like see how you're going to work together. Mm. If you can't even get to a contract together, how are you going to get to a design revision? How are you going to get to shipping something? You know, we, uh, Last year, we, just, we walked away from a $2 million project because the process of, of like, even agreeing on the terms and the scope and the outcomes and all that was so laborious. And so one day I just called the client and I was like, Hey, um, has this been really difficult for you? And they're like, honestly, yes. And I was like, it's like taxing me and my team too. Like it's killing us, you know, like this has been really difficult. And, we think that this is probably not a good fit, and this is after like you know weeks and weeks of like trying to come to terms with like what we were gonna do and all that. So it was just it was just hard, hmm. and I'm like, how are we gonna do a year's worth of work together, you know? And and they were really upset about that, you know. Hmm. They were just like, well, like because for them it was sunk cost, you know. For them it was like, well, listen, we put weeks of work in with you. We told all of our under, other vendors to go away, and I was like, but guys, you know that this is not gonna be a great a great project. Like you you can tell, <laughs> you know, yeah. like. And and you know and we got yelled at on the phone and the the main client there like he yelled at us and he called us names and he insulted us and like all of that like and I was like well cool like done deal now <laughs>
0: like yeah, thank now you for
1: cementing that you know
0: thanks for and, proving and, this was the right decision
1: exactly you know and it was like that's why I like kind of a longer sales process it gives you it gives you a chance to test some of those things is to go you know trust your gut on that on that stuff like if it smells off you know it's probably spoiled
0: uh-huh yeah you know what you're actually bringing me around because. When, when you first said, you know, six or nine month sales process, I was imagining that kind of a, that it was, that it was more of that, like, like negotiating happening that whole time when oh, instead, no. now that you've sort of uh called that out and given earlier examples of like, Hey, if you don't trust us yet, go listen to a pot, you know, go, go trust us more <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> or get someone else that, that doesn't, that's not alarming to me at all. I mean, that's more like, um. I mean, it's almost like a, a one-on-one content marketing play. You know, you're like... Right, you're exactly. Like, yeah, that doesn't... Actually, I'd have patience for that when you put it like that. Yeah. Well, and I cool. would
1: much rather a client do that. And to me, that's like that's the opposite of the story I just shared, where a client comes back and says, all right, listen, I read this book chapter and I listened to these podcasts and I have some questions for you. I'm like, yes, yeah, that perfect. is the kind of client I want to work with. You know, like, that's a great sign. And so a little bit of time, a little bit longer time in the sales process allows for some of that back and forth.
0: Yeah, I think... I. Th- I think it was Seth Godin I recently saw, he said, he said, if, if you don't like sales, stop thinking of them as prospects and start thinking of them as students. And it was like, Ooh, Oh, I love that. <laughs> so good. <laughs>
1: That's really good. <laughs> it's really
0: good. Oh, cool. Well, Dan, this has been absolutely amazing. I know we both have to run, but uh, thanks so much for coming on and sharing all of that experience and wisdom you've built up over the years. I just, I think it's, it's super valuable and I just, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is a great conversation. I love geeking out about this stuff, so thanks for the, for the opportunity. Uh,
0: so where can people go to find out more about you?
1: Yeah, so I tweet uh, somewhat regularly at, at DanMall uh, on Twitter. I tweet about design and sales and business development and the this Philadelphia 76ers. Um, and who won last night? Thank you. Uh, so happy about that. Um, and, uh, and danmall.me is my personal website. Superfriend.ly is the agency that I run. To check out our work there and listen to some of those podcasts that I tend to send to, to clients. So we do all of our case studies as as podcasts. Um, so you can read it if you want to, or you can listen to it if you want to. Um, and uh, and the last thing is my book about pricing. It's called Pricing Design. It's distributed by A Book Apart. Um, so you can get it. It's it's uh, 50 pages, so it's really small. You can read it on a flight or um, you know a, a long bathroom break. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can get it at, at bookapart.com.
0: Wow. Awesome. All right, Dan, thanks so much.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jonathan.
0: All right, folks, so that's it for this time around. Thanks for listening. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join us again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Would you like to learn how to get paid what you're worth? How about selling your expertise and not your labor? We work through all of this together in the pricing seminar. Pre-registration starts soon, and you can sign up to be only the first to know when early bird pricing is announced at thepricingseminar.com. That URL again is thepricingseminar.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time. Or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space. Or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.